So this Sunday, I'm very excited. It's our first Q&A Sunday. Um, and someone said, oh, you're going to be taking questions from the audience live. And I said, no way. <laughs> They're just, I'm, I'm not that gifted. There's no way I could handle that. Um, but we'll have this every fifth Sunday. This is our first Sunday doing it. This is our first year doing it. And we hope that it's a success. And one of the things um, in a survey of why people don't invite friends and coworkers to church is, is it's that one of the reasons they themselves may love their church and like the preaching, but they don't quite trust either the pastor or the congregation to handle visitors carefully. And I hope, by the way I answer the questions today, that um, I'm able to demonstrate, hopefully, um, that that's not the case, that you, you hear the way some of these questions are answered and feel like, okay, I can, I can invite people to an event like this. Uh, hopefully you feel you can invite people to church every Sunday, but especially a Sunday like this where we're talking about um, questions that many of us have. You know, believers and skeptics often have the same questions. Uh, we both want to know why God allows evil in the world. We both want to know um, why certain things happen. We both want to know, you know, how the cosmos came into being, but believers, our hearts are trusting and resting in God's faithfulness, even though there are things we don't understand, but we often share the same questions as unbelievers. And so some of the questions that um, we wouldn't think other Christians are dealing with are kind of nagging us in the back of our head. So uh, we're going to kick things off with seven anonymous questions, and I'll just, I'm just going to read through what the questions are. Uh, someone has asked a question about Satan's role in sickness, um, what successful Christian living looks like against the backdrop of what the early church looked like in the book of Acts, God's role in natural disasters, the salvation of Old Testament saints before Jesus' death and resurrection, and children who die in infancy and people in remote places who never get to hear about the gospel. That's all one question. Uh, Christians and the gay lifestyle, it's another question. What does the Bible mean when it says that women are saved through childbearing? And then finally, prayer and the sovereignty of God. We're going to try to move to these questions quickly. So let's pray first, though. Father, thank you for uh, uh, this gathering. Thank you for the grace that you shed and pour out in our hearts. And though you have given us a certain word of assurance through Scripture... We still have questions, and so we pray, Lord God, that your spirit would, would guide my words and our hearts and our minds this morning, and that your spirit would reign and illuminate us. Father, help us to uh, be encouraged by what we hear. Help us, Lord, that some of our questions are answered, and we pray, Lord, that you would, uh, the spirit of truth would reign in this building. In Christ's name, amen. So the first question is about Satan's role in sickness, and so I've I've maintained the questions as they were asked. I was going to kind of like synthesize them and rewrite them, but I figured, you know, I'm just going to give you the questions exactly how they were asked. So considering the woman with the issue of blood in Luke 13, what is the role of Satan in physical sicknesses, and how should this change how we pray for and work with, especially those of us in healthcare, those who are ill? So if you're not familiar with the story, there is a woman who comes to Jesus who has an issue of blood. She's hemorrhaging for a long, long time. And scripture says she has a disabling spirit, a disabling spirit, which makes it sound that her illness is the direct result of satanic affliction. Now, when we read through the Gospels, it says Jesus went, around, went about casting out demons 
and healing the sick. And if we're not careful, sometimes in our minds, that's, that's just one big group of people. Sick people are demon-possessed, but in reality, Scripture makes a distinction. There are two separate groups. There are people who are demon-possessed, and then there are people who are sick. But in her case, it seems like she's sick because there is some type of satanic affliction. Uh, The Gospels also attribute uh, a variety of physical symptoms to the dominating influence of evil spirits. So we can't completely rule out the idea that someone is sick because uh, there's demonic activity uh, going on there. Um, But the practical challenge for us as modern Christians um, is that if we say sickness is the result of a demon, when we can't be certain, we run the risk of possibly not caring uh, and loving that person as they are, um, regardless of whether they're ever healed. And what I'm getting at is um, what we want to see in sick people is not the face of Satan reflected back at us, but the face of Jesus. So when we see sick people, people who are sick or disabled or have a deformity or some type of handicap, we don't want to see them as maybe being guilty of some sin that caused Satan to to attack them. We want to see in their face the face of Jesus reflecting back at us. And what God wants us to do is to demonstrate compassion and mercy. But certainly we pray for people who are ill. Now, um, Paul had an affliction. Uh, The Bible says he had a thorn in his flesh. And he prayed and God did not answer but said, my grace is sufficient. Yet there are all types of other scenarios in Scripture where people were sick and God healed them. What seems to be what seems to be the dividing factor? Well, as someone who reads Scripture uh, for a living, I've picked up on a pattern. Now, this is not an absolute pattern, but it looks like a pattern in Scripture. Often, people who do not believe uh, will receive healing as a testimony to the power of God, which encourages them to have faith in the gospel. But often for people who are already believers and encounter sickness, God gives them grace and often does not heal them, but gives them grace and strength to live with an illness or a sickness that he might be glorified. Now, that may sound like an an absolute, as if I've just made two kind of false categories. God heals Christians all the time of sickness. But God also chooses not to heal Christians of sickness. And so what we have to do is recognize that there are times that God chooses not to heal. And also, not just in the case of Paul, but in the case of Moses, sometimes God is the one disabling. God calls Moses to be his messenger to go to Egypt And Moses says, I have a speech impediment. I'm slow of speech. I'm not qualified. And God says, in Exodus 4, who's the one that made man's mouth? Who makes him lame or his tongue lame or mute? Is it not I? God sometimes is the one doing the disabling and then vocationing people so that his glory might be made manifest in them. God can heal And he does heal, and we should pray for healing, but also recognize that God sometimes does not heal for the purpose of glorifying himself in us. Um, 
So how should this change how we pray for and work with, especially those in healthcare? How should we how should this change how we work with and pray for those who are ill? We should absolutely pray for the sick. And in the meantime, bring whatever form of healing to them God has put in our power. And I guess what I'm saying is we shouldn't be in the business of trying to figure out if someone is sick because they have a devil. I just don't know that that's the best approach to caring for sick people, especially if you, if you work in healthcare. We should pray for people, um, but we should also bring whatever um, type of healing and care that's God, that God has put in our power. God is pleased with that when we have mercy and compassion on the sick. Um, again, we should see the face of Christ reflected back to us in the sick and diseased, not the face of Satan. Um, there is another question, the next question, which I think is a follow-up. Maybe the same person wrote this question, which is, how do we live more effectively for God? It doesn't seem like the book of Acts is really happening in my life or perhaps our lives. And if you think of the logical connection, I'm assuming same person wrote this. Um, the logical connection is in the book of Acts, people were healed miraculously all over the place. And so naturally you'd think, well, what's wrong with us? that that kind of healing and miraculous power is not taking place. Well, I think it's good to look at the book of Acts for examples of what the disciples did, uh, but I think it can be a mistake to look at those examples as a prescription of what successful Christian living looks like. Does that that make sense? Um, There is a difference in Scripture, so... Every book of the Bible falls into a certain genre and category, and not every book of the Bible is written the same. Some books are written for instruction. There's a didactic quality where they're teaching us theology and doctrine, and other books of the Bible are of more of a, uh, uh, an observation. It's, it's kind of a, a record of a history. The book of Acts falls into that category, which means most of what we find in the book of Acts is descriptive but it is not necessarily prescriptive, if that makes sense. So it's telling us what happened, but it is not necessarily a prescription for exactly how we should expect our own lives to go. Now, I say that carefully to say that there are things in the book of Acts we look at as, and, and we do glean understanding about God, understanding about the church. We do get some doctrine from the book of Acts, but um, generally it can be misleading here, here's, here's a few examples. In, in Acts 5, Peter's, apparently Peter's shadow had the power to heal people. In Acts chapter 5, they lined people up on the sides of the streets, hoping that when Peter walked by, his shadow would fall on them and heal them. And then in Acts uh, 19, they took pieces of Paul's handkerchief and dispersed it among the people because he was so anointed, so filled with the miraculous power of God, that Sick people just coming in contact with Paul's handkerchief could heal, apparently. From, this is Luke recording in the book of Acts. Um, so if this were normative, we might expect other places in the New Testament to corroborate this as a normative teaching for us. You know, cut up your clothing and, you know, just expect your shadow to fall on people. But we don't find it as something taught as normative anywhere else in the New Testament. So back to the original question, how do we live more effectively for God? Um, 
if that's what we're talking about, if we're simply looking at those miracles and those healings as being the measuring stick of whether we're living effectively for God, I think that that's a mistake. There were obviously certain things that were happening in the times of the apostles that were not of a normative character. Um, It doesn't mean that God never works that way, but um, it means that that is not typically the way God moves, nor is it a good gauge for us to measure whether we're living effectively or powerfully. Now, we have books in the New Testament. We have the gospel account, Jesus' teaching, um, the Sermon on the Mount, and we have the epistles that give us a lot of good doctrine and theology about what it means to live successfully as a Christian. So um, I hope that's helpful. Um, The next question is about God's role in natural disasters. How do we explain God's role in natural disasters? This is actually an issue that I have been wrestling with and thinking through deeply for the past year or so. Um, What we want to know when we ask this question, is God directly behind natural disasters and why? That's what we want to know. Why? Is it judgment? Um, And if he's not directly responsible, why isn't he intervening to spare human life, right? You just think of some of the recent natural disasters. I mean, 2004, the earthquake, the tsunami, I think close to 200,000 people were killed in that area between Sumatra, Indonesia, and Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean. So we see things like that, and we want to know, is this God's judgment, or has God turned a blind eye, and is he completely uninvolved, and just kind of letting the earth do its thing, randomly destroying and wreaking havoc in lives and cities and societies, right? Um, This is a big one. This is a really big one. Um, randomness. Is God in control or is there just randomness and chance in the world? I think it's important for us to recognize that the order and the calm of our natural world is not nature acting naturally. In the cosmos, nature acting naturally is quite chaotic. Asteroids and comets and supernovas exploding. I mean, if we're to look beyond our own planet, we realize that the calm that we experience here is not really normal. Which is a way to say that God is actually restraining disaster on a massive scale all the time, every single day. That's one, that's one answer. Um, And the other thing is, is when we think about natural disasters, we think about things like, what, earthquakes and hurricanes and floods and tsunamis. And those things are tragic when there's a loss of life, but I'm reluctant, and I think we should be reluctant, to call those things evil. So earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes, right, um, Is nature doing its thing, and when there's a loss of life, that's tragic, suffering, right? But I think we should be careful about calling those things evil, and here's why. God has made the world in a certain way to survive and to function for the long term 
for the good of the planet and good of people, generally speaking, overall. The overall sense is that the Earth is made to function in a way that sustains life for the long term. Earthquakes are the result of tectonic plates moving over each other very, very slowly, which renew the surface of the Earth. The crust of the Earth is recycled over a very long time, and that's a very good design. It's a very good thing that tectonic plates move over each other. The same thing with the roaring of the ocean, right? The, the massive movement of the ocean with all the waves is like a big washing machine keeping the, the, the oceans from becoming stagnant. Volcanic eruptions create landmass. Right now in the South Pacific, just south of the Hawaiian Islands, new landmasses are, are popping up all the time as vol, you know, massive volcanic mountains which reach the surface of the water are spitting out new magma. And as the magma cools, it creates new landmass. And over time, dirt and seed and grass will grow. And over time, presumably, we have new landmasses. And all of that, all of those things are good things. But they're not always safe, right? If you drive your boat over a, an oceanic volcano while it's exploding, you'll die. If you go out into the ocean during a hurricane where there's massive 80-foot waves, you may not come back. One of the things I love about the wilderness is the fact that it's wild. It's kind of dangerous, and that's kind of what makes it beautiful and wonderful. And we tend to atomize and individualize these tragedies, um, but God is not only concerned with individual human beings, but in the flourishing of the created order, the natural world. Uh, there's this um, line from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Susan and Lucy ask Mr. Beaver about Aslan. Who is Aslan? And Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan is the lion. Um, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In a similar way, uh, the creation points to the majestic power of God, and it's not just the calm parts of, the, of nature, but also the wild and dangerous parts of nature that point to the majesty and the power of God. Um, and like God, the world is good, but not always safe, if that makes sense. And so I think we make a mistake by thinking that um, a good world necessarily means a tame world, um, if, if, if that's a helpful way to think about it. So God is at work for the flourishing of the earth, and we know that in the new heavens and a new earth, all tears Will, will, will be dried up, right? Death will be done away with. I don't know if earthquakes will stop happening, though. I don't know. It seems right now that that's a part of the good design of the way the earth functions. Um, just as a, as a means of application, God's role in natural disasters could be judgment, like in some scenarios in the Old Testament, or it could be him just letting the earth do its thing for the greater long-term good of the world and humanity. Uh, but again, we should be comforted with the idea that a sovereign God is in control. 
for purposes that we're not always privy to. We just don't have those answers. Why God allowed a natural disaster in an area that was heavily populated to kill so many people. Tragic, but we just don't know the answers why. God is in control, and at the same time, he's created the earth in such a way to do its thing. Um, That may seem kind of open-ended, but that's the best I can do with that one. (laughs) Um, The next question says, since God sent Jesus to die for those who believe in him, does that include those who died before Jesus' death and resurrection? And then the second, I'm assuming this is a follow-up, what about people who died before they're able to know about Jesus, babies and people in remote places? So first, let's deal with the first part of that question. The answer to, um, since God sent Jesus to die for those who believe in him, does that include those who died before Jesus' death and resurrection? The answer simply is yes. Um, People who lived and believed before Jesus' coming were saved by faith. As they believed in the promises of God, the law and the prophets which spoke of the redemption that would come through a Messiah, they were saved the same way we're saved. They were justified by faith. Abraham says, he, it says Abraham believed God. The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The same way with us. That's Paul's argument in Galatians. So they were saved by faith, looking forward to the cross. We're saved by faith, looking backward to the cross. So the answer to that is yes. Second part of that question, what about people who died before they're able to know about Jesus? Babies, people in remote places. Has anyone ever had this question before? Anyone thought about this question? You know, someone once said, uh, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Um, But whether we're talking about someone in the year 1770 in Papua New Guinea, right, the way our minds work, well, people in Papua New Guinea in the 1700s probably didn't hear about the gospel, or maybe the 1600s, or the 1500s, or the 1400s. or a child dying in infancy, whether it's either of those cases, we're troubled by the idea that someone might be lost who never had a chance to hear the gospel of salvation. It's kind of like uh, your home went into foreclosure and somebody, there was a government program to, I don't know, mail everyone checks to appease the banknote, but the weather got bad and the and the, and the postman didn't deliver the check in time and your house went into foreclosure anyway, right? It's like this scenario we think of, like, that doesn't seem right. People who are lost simply because they didn't have a chance to hear the gospel, like, like that's a, that doesn't sit well with us, right? It just, it doesn't sit well with us. Um, this is where our doctrine of election comes in. This is why I love the doctrine of election that we preach and believe in and we hold to. Whoever the Father gave to the Son in eternity past to be saved will be saved. There's a verse in John 6.39, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all those that he has given me, I should lose no one, but raise them up on the last day. And also, our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uses really precise and carefully chosen language on this matter. It says, Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated 
and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. This was written a long time ago. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Bottom line, if God has elected someone for eternal life, they will be saved, even if the gospel doesn't get to them on time. And that is, that's a word of incredible comfort for us. Generally speaking, the gospel goes out. That's how people come to saving faith. But if there, perchance, are some who never got to hear the saving message of the gospel, and God has predestined them before the foundation of the world, they'll be saved. Bottom line. Next question um, is about practicing, well, it's about the gay lifestyle and Christian faith. And the question is, how does God view a person's salvation if the person is gay and pursues that lifestyle, yet professes Jesus as their Lord and Savior? So, the question presumes that the gay lifestyle is out of sync with a faithful walk with the Lord, is that presumption correct? Well, 1 Corinthians 6 and 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor uh, idolaters, nor those who practice homosexuality will enter the kingdom of God. So from a biblical point of view, we know that that's out of sync with God's will for his people, what it means to live faithfully. Now, to get at this question is tough. First of all, this is an emotional issue because many of us have gay friends. And some of them may see themselves as Christians. Some of them may see themselves as good people, even maybe profess Christian faith. This is my answer as I, as I thought through this question, and I think this is a faithful answer. If someone who's living the gay lifestyle comes to faith but has not stopped that lifestyle, it's possible that God is patiently working with them as they read Scripture and come into a greater walk with Him and a greater awareness of their sins. So just from the surface, if we see someone who's practicing a gay lifestyle, maybe professes faith in Christ, God may be working with this person to bring them into greater understanding of what it means to live a godly life in, in Christ. On the other hand, if they know the commandments and they know Scripture and reject it as somehow non-applicable to them or outdated or has simply, as Scripture uses this phrase, seared their conscience and continues actively rebelling against God's law, they're under God's wrath and judgment or their profession of faith is simply a ruse. So I'm married, and if I, if I say I'm a Christian, and I've got, if, you know, I'm, I'm an unfaithful husband, and someone confronts me, and I say, there's nothing wrong with it. What's wrong with this? You would say, this, there's no way this, this guy's a Christian. There's no way the Holy Spirit is at work in this guy's heart. He is actively, not, not only sinning actively, but making a habit out of something and actively rebelling against God, saying that what Scripture says clearly it doesn't say, or somehow is no big deal. Right? And, and, if, and if you had that inclination to think that, you'd be right. 1 John 3.9 says, No one who is born of God will continue sinning 
because God's seed remains in them. In other words, they can't go on in a habit of sinning because they have been born of God. The implication there is if there is a sin habit that we refuse to give up, well, maybe we haven't been born of God. We're not talking about the, the things we all wrestle with. So if someone comes to saving faith and they were once living a gay lifestyle, they may for the rest of their life struggle with that sin and its temptation. And maybe sometimes, you know, lose, occasionally lose a battle here and there with it. But they know it's sin and they're struggling and wrestling and seeking God for greater faithfulness and obedience. And the same thing goes for us in any area of sin we struggle with. Maybe you, maybe you were a habitual liar before you came to saving faith, and every now and again you struggle with lying. That doesn't mean your salvation's in, invalid. And the same thing goes for you know, different sins in our life. But actively rebelling against God by saying that a sin practice there's nothing wrong with and we continue to engage in it is rebellion against God. So that's how God sees it. Um, the next question may be one of the most confusing statements in Scripture. I'm giving myself a timer here, and I'm almost at the end. Um, what does 1 Timothy 2.15 mean when it says that women will be saved through childbearing? Has anyone ever encountered that verse? Has anyone ever thought, what in the world could that verse mean? I have a buddy who graduated seminary, and he went to go get ordained in South Carolina, and the presbytery wanted as his you know, um, ordination for him to preach to this verse. That's mean. That's just wrong. Um, So what in the world could Paul be talking about that women are saved through childbearing? Well, Paul has just finished in this passage of Scripture, in the previous verses before that, he has just finished explaining the difference between men and women's roles, and he makes a sidebar about Eve disobeying first. Eve eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And although he doesn't say it, what's implied is Eve's curse. And so Paul, because in his mind, Paul moves fluidly back and forth through the scriptures. He just knows the Bible really well. And of course, in the first century, the Bible is the Old Testament. And so any discussion about Eve's sin automatically engenders the idea of the curse that all women experience, which in Genesis was that God would increase a woman's pain in childbearing. And so though Paul mentions this thing about women, and especially since he's talking about it within the context of men and women's roles, it feels like he's just done this to women. He's just punched women as a whole in the gut. And so he cleans it up with this statement that women will be saved through childbearing provided they continue in faith and humility and modesty. And you have to think about the power of this statement. Long before modern medicine in the ancient world, before epidurals and episiotomies and and, current medical treatment, um, childbearing was far rougher than it is now for women. I mean, it's tough, right, women? For those of you that have had kids, it's still pretty tough, right? It's pretty tough. But in the first century, women often died giving, giving birth. I mean, you can read story, stories even up until the early 1800s of you know, um, women dying in childbirth or 
you know, four of their eight children, you know, they were lost during childbirth. I mean, the modern medicine and the modern era has really changed the way we think about some of these verses. And what Paul is essentially saying in this statement is, the curse will not have the last say over you. So he makes a statement about Eve. It sounds like it's pretty hard, but when he says that women will be saved through childbearing, it doesn't mean they're going to be saved by giving birth, because that's the way the verse sounds. Like their ticket into heaven is having kids. That's just bad. And the Greek, it works a little differently. So in English, it just doesn't work great. What he's saying actually is not they're going to be saved by giving birth, but through, they're going to be brought through childbearing, as if like brought through the fire. They'll be saved through childbearing, provided they, they, they believe and they live a life of modesty and humility, which is to say that, that childbearing is not going to be the end of you, nor will it damn you to hell. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is getting at. Um, yeah, the pains of childbearing, even if they last a lifetime, are not the final word over women. All right. And then finally, and I saved this one for last, um, this is a biggie. You recently preached about prayer. It sounded like you only think prayer influences us and not God. Does God hear and respond to our prayers? How does prayer fit in with God's sovereignty? And you spoke about God only giving his children good things. I agree, obviously, whoever you are. But what about our miscarriages? I prayed that God would protect my children, and they died. Just a quick time out. A lot of these questions you can see relate to personal suffering, ideas of suffering in the world. And that's, that's, that's pretty consistent with, with how a lot of questions work. People, people rarely have questions about you know, the nature of justification or something like that. They want to know about suffering, their own personal suffering and suffering in the world, which demonstrates that our deepest questions are not even philosophical, they're practical. Our deepest questions are practical questions. Um, I prayed that God would protect my children they died. Was I asking with the wrong motivations, being selfish, as you mentioned in your sermon? In short, what about good and noble prayers that God does not answer? This is a great question. What we all want to know is, and we're wrapping up our talk this morning, we all want to know, does prayer make any difference? Because if you've had important prayers seemingly ignored by God, it can feel like a futile endeavor. We want to know, does prayer really change things? We want to know, does prayer change God's mind in any real sense? Now, no human being has ever had a more profound understanding of the sovereignty of God than Jesus did. And he was always praying. Isn't that interesting? You'd think Jesus, the manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, knows that the sovereign will of God is just going to happen no matter what, and he comes into this world and says, I'm not going to bother praying. I know it's all going to be taken care of. But he doesn't do that. He was always praying. And Scripture tells us elsewhere to pray without ceasing. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus himself did not have all of his prayers answered. He certainly didn't have his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that the cup of suffering would pass from him. Right? Father, if it be possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. It wasn't possible. 
God did not answer that prayer for Jesus. And who knows if there were other prayers in Jesus' prayer life and his, over, the, over the course of his life that God also didn't answer. Um, God is always, this is something we should know about prayer, God is always at work for his glory and for our good, um, but sometimes, so sometimes an unanswered prayer averts disaster, and sometimes unanswered prayer is part of our call to suffer. A couple verses here. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 2 Corinthians 1 and 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And all of this tells us that sometimes unanswered prayer, which seems to increase suffering in our lives, is a part of God's will for us. To suffer with Christ. And to know him through the fellowship of suffering. Now that may be a hard pill to swallow, but that's the life that God has called us to. God often answers prayer. But sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes when those answered, unanswered prayers create what appears to be suffering in our lives, it's actually God calling us, sanctifying us, calling us to be more like him, forming the image of Jesus in us through that suffering. You know what's helpful for us to recognize is that prayer is not transactional. And I think some of us, and I'm not impugning that to this question, but I think in general we tend to think prayer is like a transaction. Like a quarter, we drop a prayer in the machine, and we pull the lever, and we get out the answer we want. And that's not how prayer really works. Prayer is a way for us to not only communicate with God, but commune with God. God meets us in prayer in a special way that he doesn't in any other way. God sovereignly delights in answering prayer, or else he wouldn't command us to make our petitions known. Um, but it's clear that he doesn't obviously answer every prayer. Part of the trial of our faith is preserve, per, per, excuse me, persevering in faith even though at times God seems silent. But silence doesn't mean God is absent. Prayer draws us close to God. It makes us holy. It sets our affections on the things of God. It humbles us. It makes us obedient. And yes, it often does change things. I think if all of us were honest and thought back through our own prayer lives and our own walk of faith, we could all testify to times where we saw absolutely God answering prayer. God does answer prayer. He invites us in to commune and communicate with him to change the outcome of things. How does that work with the sovereignty of God? I'm not really sure, but I was explaining to someone the other day, I was with somebody the other day, and I said, the power of prayer to change things within the sovereignty of God is, is it feels like, this is just the image that comes to my mind, bowling down a, a bowling alley with the bumpers up. When you, when you take your kids to the bowling alley, you put the bumpers up, and the bumpers do what? The bumpers prevent that ball from falling into the gutter, right? So God's sovereign will is no gutter, no gutter, right? But within the space between those two bumpers, 
There's all this freedom for that ball to move fast or slow or to bounce back and forth depending on the way you throw it. And so God is sovereign, but has also given us freedom to change the outcome of things within his sovereignty through prayer. So I encourage you to pray. To the, to the final section of the question about a miscarriage, uh, miscarriages are also part of the brokenness of our world, which God promises to remedy and to fix in the new creation. Why God allows that to happen to us individually, there's really no explanation. There's no way that anyone can come and say, this is why God allowed that miscarriage. There's no way to do that. In fact, what's more helpful is whoever it was who asked that question, you should know that God mourns and weeps as someone who also has lost a child. God knows what it's like to lose a child. And God is with us in tragedy. God loves us through tragedy. God is not cold. He's not distant. He's not aloof. Even in the times and prayers that are unanswered, he still holds us close. Like a parent not able to give a child everything that they want. But he still holds us close and he loves us through it all. Let's pray.